Hi, and welcome to episode 70 of Oscar Podcast. This is part two, and we're going to talk about the year 2009, which was notable because the first woman in 82 years of Oscar history, no woman had won um, Best Director, and no film directed by a woman had won Best Picture. So now... In my blogging career, I have seen the first woman-directed film win Best Picture, and now I've seen the first film directed by a black director win Best Picture. This is quite exceptional for me, I have to say. These are two things that I wanted to accomplish in the years that I've been Oscar blogging. Not that I had anything to do with it, but just to say that to see this happen, to see these things realized... um, Two milestones that you lived through, you lived through intimately with. And, and advocated hard for, really mm-hmm. hard for, for years, for both of them. Um, it was, and Halle Berry, winning Best Actress, same thing. Like, these are the kind of things that keep me in the game. You know, obviously, I don't really give a shit who wins Best Picture, I'm sorry to say. But when something like this happens, you know, um, it, it really means something. And the, this year, 2009 was was an exceptional year to live through one of the best for me and um watching Catherine Bigelow win was cool and watching you know a movie that made 12 million dollars win was pretty cool and have it to have it be still such a great movie no matter if it made money or not um it's a great movie but it was also just a really exciting year because it was it was um nuts and bolts filmmaking a war film versus a breakthrough in film technology, Avatar, which is currently the highest-grossing film of all time, beating the last film that was directed by Jim, Jim Cameron, Titanic. Uh, he has the, both the number one and number two spots. He's going to probably have the number one spot again with the next Avatar. Uh, performance capture, uh, original screenplay, not a sequel, not a remake, nothing branded about Cameron's work. It's wholly original. And Avatar was unlike anything anyone had ever seen. It was a cinematic breakthrough, and it very likely changed the course of cinema forever. Um, Bigelow's contribution is somewhat smaller, but important to people like me who um, are looking for a more equal playing field in in, in filmmaking. And uh, I think she made one of the best war films I've ever seen with The Hurt Locker. It was an interesting year. They had been married, so you had Cameron versus Bigelow in, in a drama. Early on in the race, Cameron won the Golden Globe for picture and director, while Catherine Bigelow kind of just had to sit there and applaud, and I think that really set into motion sympathy for her, and I think that it, the same way that the BAFTAs with Steve McQueen this year, when something like that happens and on a large scale and everybody's there to see it, I think it really changes people's minds. And very shortly thereafter, Bigelow won the uh, PGA and then won the DGA and then won the Oscar. Um, One thing about the Golden Globes event is that I believe that I, that I remember that it was something about James Cameron's attitude that reminded people what James Cameron was really like <laughs> at the, at the, on stage accepting awards, and they remembered that it wasn't really very attractive. <laughs> that's, what I, that's the impression I got, that, that his attitude on stage when he accepted the Golden Globe for Best Director, they would flash on the audience, and people were sort of like, uh-oh, buyer's, re- buyer's remorse. Yeah, and he was being an asshole. I'm sorry. He was being an yeah. asshole during the Oscar campaigning because he kept saying stuff like she can have director but give us best picture <laughs> really? uh-huh, right as if he was like, like he was being magnanimous yeah mm-hmm. and he really couldn't believe it that she was unseating him and it's such a little movie it was such a david and goliath story that is a year someone should really write a book about maybe i will write that book but the thing well, is well, that's the year too it was the first year that we went to 10 nominees that's another yeah. thing that i'm sure that you were going to get around to mentioning but 
Well, that is the first yeah. year that there were ten nominees, right? We haven't quite got there yet, but yes, this was mm-hmm. this was the fallout from the Dark Knight not getting uh, nominated, and they the Academy decided to expand to to ten, and they only did ten nominees for two years, and mm-hmm. then the next year after that they went back to five nominees. Um, that but the Academy would choose more than five for Best Picture, but they went the the voters only pick five. This was mm-hmm. the year they picked ten, and and you can look at the Best Picture. Lineup, and you can see a really diverse array of um, <clears throat> of films for Best Picture that you will probably never see again. Uh, District Nine got in, and Education got in, A Serious Man got in, uh, The Blind Side, Up, Up was the last animated film to be nominated for Best Picture, um, I think. Right? Mm, I think so. One. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine any other year when two science fiction films would both be nominated for Best Picture, Avatar and District 9. And there was talk for a while that with Star Trek, the Star Trek reboot was so good and people enjoyed that so much that they thought there might even be three. Yeah, it's almost like they hate animated in Best Picture so much that they changed it to where the animated... Because this year, um, two two years in a row, they had an animated film in, in for Best Picture. They had Up and then they had to, Toy Story 3. Mm-hmm. And the next year is no more animated films uh, in the Best Picture race because of the way that they count the ballots, and we can talk about that in a little while. Um, Jeff Bridges finally won for Crazy Heart. He has one of the unusual distinctions of being a Best Actor winner in a non-Best Picture um, nominee, and, and especially with 10 nominees, it's kind of crazy that Crazy Heart didn't get in there, and Jeff Bridges still won, but that just shows you how beloved he was, how hard he campaigned. He's campaigned like... Uh, like I've never seen any contender campaign Jeff Bridges that year. I always, mm-hmm. I he's the bar. Like when you set the bar of like the most you can do in a campaign season, Jeff Bridges hit it. Sandra Bullock won for The Blind Side, um, finally capping a very successful career, bringing a lot of money into Hollywood and a very beloved, liked actress. Christoph Waltz phoned it in and won for Glorious Bastards, and Monique could not stop winning for Precious. I don't think we even realized how much Christopher, Christoph Waltz was phoning it in until we saw him do the exact same performance a couple of years later. You know, then we really realized that okay, that he's just he does this all the time. No, he's great in *The Glorious Bastards*. Yeah. Make no mistake. And it was yeah. a better role, really, in *The Glorious Bastards*. It was more central. It was almost like a lead role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So the Academy, when they had, they were never at their, be- uh, they were never in such a, a good light as when they had ten nominees because not only do they have this year, they have an education and um, the Hurt Locker directed by women, but the following year they have other, you know, they have a, they have Winter's Bone and the Kids Are All Right directed by women. Mm-hmm. And then the next years, uh, it's harder. It gets harder and harder for both films about women and films directed by women. But when they had 10, they had more leeway because voters were picking 10 nominees. So they could pick movies like Avatar and A Serious Man on the same ballot. Well, if you only have five, you're not going to put Toy Story 3 in your number five unless you're mm-hmm. retarded. The thing is, simply put, I think when voters only have to choose five movies, a lot of them pick the same five movies. But when you when they when they're when they're required to choose ten movies, they're they're very the variations in the in individual taste start to show up. Oh yeah. But they they cannot possibly show up if they have five nominees because there's always going to be five top movies that almost everyone agrees on. Right. It's the it's the number six through ten where people start to diverge, and that's right. where you get 
the variety that we'd like to see. And it's nice to see that 10. I mean, sure. <clears throat> I think that when they when they switch to, to the new way that they're doing it now for the last three years, you're just getting more of the same shit. You know, you're getting yeah. the same kind of movies they like, only more of them instead mm-hmm. of a diverse array of choices like you got these, these two years. So I wish that they would either go back to five, because that's what they seem to want to do, or go back to ten, but this this other way, I think I don't think it's good for the academy. Although, who could complain with last year's lineup, which was a great lineup? They're they're yeah. trying to be the best of both worlds. They're trying to be perceived as smart, and they're trying to be perceived as popular. And I'm not sure that you can always do both of those things at the same time. And they may be better off picking one or the other. Yeah, and I think you had they had a better chance of being popular with. Um, this way, although, how can I say that when we've had years with movies like Argo and Gravity and these incredibly popular films that have gotten in, you know? I don't know mm-hmm. that my theory is right. All I know is that when they had 10 slots, they had a more diverse lineup. That's not necessarily a more profitable or successful lineup, but it is more diverse. I will say, and I had already, I told you off the record, even before we started recording, that I was not going to say anything bad about, I was not going to be saying anything negative about the blind side. But I have to think that the first year that they expand to 10 nominees and the blind slide slips into a Best Picture nominee, I'm sure a lot of people thought, what the hell have we done? What have we done to to to, to well, talk to be able to allow something like a blind side? To see, I totally disagree. I think you're putting your opinions of the movie on it when you're not oh, am, considering yeah. the people who vote. And I think that right. that's the one thing is that that movie is not my personal wheelhouse it's not a movie that i would ever want to see again but for the kind of movie that it was that's totally in the wheelhouse of a certain large block of of oscar voters and it also made 250 million dollars that's true so to just because we don't particularly like it i don't think it's safe to say that that's the movie that wouldn't have gotten nominated if there were fewer than 10 Oh, I'm not saying nominees. that. I'm just saying I'm just saying that that the one of these things is not like the other. That the other nine nominees that year, I think, were all pretty outstanding. That none of they they can stand alongside any of the best picture nominees throughout history and hold their head up high. I don't feel personally the same way about the Blind Side. But going back to the 1940s, when there were ten nominees, you also find a lot of movies that you think, how the heck did they, that ever get nominated for best picture? Because there are always that 10 percent of the Academy who are going to go for that kind of movie. And so, well, as you say. About- you have to consider the voters. You have to remember one thing about the Academy, and and this this was a very surprising to see the Blind Side get in, and the reason for that is that it had no precursor support, and so it was one of those kind of crazy things, like extremely loud and incredibly close, um, that that sneaks in there um, with <clears throat> with very little precursor support because they deliberately go outside that. The Blind Side didn't even do any Oscar advertising. They didn't do any blogger um you know meet and greets they didn't they didn't try to um to to court the bloggers they didn't want the bloggers they went on a totally different route to get that film in for best picture and it was very clever and it took everybody by surprise and no one saw it coming and do you know the reason that that movie got in I'm mm, not even can even imagine. I'll give you a hint it's the same reason that extremely loud and incredibly close got in what do those two things have in common What do they have in common? What's the number one thing those two movies have in common? <laughs> I hate oh, them no. both. No. There's a big thing they have in common. Very big thing. Sandra Bullock. And that oh, wow. Sandra yeah. Bullock is incredibly popular within the Academy. She's incredibly popular with the actors. And she's the one 
who got that movie before the voting committee of the Academy is ruled by actors, that they have the biggest branch, that is the best way you can get your film in for best picture is to appeal to the actors, and that is how The Blind Side got in, and that's how Extremely Loud got in. Because if nothing else, everyone is going to want to see what Sandra Bullock exactly, is up to. yes. And they, they all like her well enough that they know yep. that she's going... That she knows, and then they also know that she makes pretty good choices. Not only do and they, they like they, her... She, she, she always makes a movie that people are going to enjoy on some level. Not only that, but you have to remember, these aren't people who are watching movies. These are people who act in movies. These are people uh -huh. who work with Sandra Bullock. These are people yeah. who... And believe me, I've met her. She's incredible incredibly charming and well liked by so many people she is one of those george clooney types who everybody likes she has no baggage and 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 think of all the shitty movies she's been she's been making movies since the 80s and she's worked with all these people and they love her right so mm -hmm. i mean think of the people sandra bullock knows and works with from george clooney to ben affleck i mean my god to to keanu reeves to you know the directors and the she's incredibly well connected and that is how you get a film like that in is you have a very popular actress do the selling for you and also the blind side is an entertaining movie and it's a movie that oh my god actors would love you know actors are are not you know, sophisticated in, in, in a lot of ways when it comes to judging. A lot of them, because a lot of them came, you know, went, went to Hollywood as soon as they graduated from high school and just got off the bus and managed to find their careers, especially some, especially the older generation of actors. A lot of, very few of them went to drama school or anything like that back in the 50s and 60s. But they look at it from an actor's perspective, and I know, and I'm not trying to, I was an actor, so I know this world pretty well. Um, they look at it from an actor's perspective. You know, what, mm -hmm. what would it be if I played that part? You know, how mm -hmm. important is that part? And yeah, look, it's a showcase role for sure. Blindside. The Blindside yeah. is Sandra Bullock and nothing else. I mean, the, the movie Road, you're, I see what you mean. The movie Road to Best Picture nomination, totally on Sandra Bullock's coattails. Mm, not, ju not just that, but it rode, it rode the box office on her coattails as well. Because if you mm -hmm. take her out of that movie, there's really not much left. It'll, it'll play to the church crowd, and that's about know, but it. This is but with what... her, it makes it a movie that 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 millions of people go see yeah but here's how you know that it was the actors because the actors have two votes they have well they have two categories they vote in acting and best picture best picture and what did mm -hmm. that movie get nominations in only only those two right yeah, it didn't have any other nominations in any other category, so nor did it deserve any, but I see what you mean. Yeah, it's not those, popular. Are the those are the two categories that the actors It was voted. not popular within the Academy overall. It was yeah. only popular, I think, with the actors. But they liked it enough to get it in there in a, in a 10-slot ballot. I don't know if it would have made it in with nine. I don't know. That's a tough one. Extremely Loud got in with nine, didn't it? Or was that ten? Uh, nine. Nine. It was the year they went back to the the, the, the variable number of nominees. Screaming. I think Up is more likely to get kicked out if there's only nine. Yeah, Up for sure. Who's going to put Up as one of their top five? Not that it's bad, but because it's already getting recognized in animation. And mm -hmm. because What Grown Man and the Academy is also dominated by grown men and actors are going to pick... Uh, actors are going to pick movies with actors, right, first of all? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Right? So it's like act, they're not going to necessarily have an incentive or, or desire to pick um, up for the one of their five. They're going to pick quote-unquote important movies. Also, mm -hmm. Extremely Loud had only two nominations. It had Best Picture and it had Max von Sydow. So that also tells you that it was popular with the actors and no other branch. 
Looking at Sandra Bullock's lifetime gross in all of her movies, according to Box Office Mojo, all of her movies together added up have earned $2.1 billion throughout her career. Yeah. That's... So that's, a, that's a, a nice pile of money. Also, I can't, I don't, I shouldn't, I mean, here I go again, but but the year that, that um, The Blind Side came out and Sandra Bullock won Best Actress, she also won the Razzie Award for Worst Actress for All About Steve the very same year. She, she was the first actress to actually show up and accept the award and basically told those assholes to stick it without actually saying that. She was very modest and very humble, but just by her being there was a huge middle finger to those jerk-offs. Totally, mm-hmm. and you want to see, a, you wanna see a, like people who thought Meryl Streep was going to win. It's like, good luck. Watch Sandra Bullock on, on stage. Watch how, I mean, yes, Meryl Streep is incredibly charming, but she's, she's a lot more... Sandra Bullock has this really humble likability about her that is that is so irresistible she's so charming um i don't know how i'm she glad she won the oscar i'll come right out and say it and i love meryl streep more than any straight white guy should but i'm glad that she lost to sandra bullock that year oh i am too only because i don't i don't really think these oscars mean all that much and i think that um bullock deserved it just as much as anyone else she certainly deserved it as much as julia roberts did for aaron brockovich you know it's not like she was that much better and I thought Bullock was great in The Blind Side, honestly. I did. I didn't really like the character she played, and I didn't like mm. uh, the story as it was, but I thought she was good. I think she's always good. I've been a fan of hers for 30 years. I love the woman. So I was mm-hmm. happy to see her win. I think it's about time. And this is what the Oscars do. They reward success. You know, It's prom night. Prom. It's the prom. There are two reasons that we talked about before that the woman wins best actress. It's either to win, to award the ingenue who's just at the beginning of her career and is still fresh in the fresh young flavor of the month, and it's also to reward the actresses who've been around for. 15 or 20 years who have not yet been awarded and it's time to give them their due before they pass into oblivion. Yeah. <laughs> Which Sandra Bullock will, will not be one of those actresses who passes into oblivion because she is able to to somehow she 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 can attract audiences to movies that you would not even expect people to go to flock to see for instance yeah. Gravity. Well, the people, did you, people, did you say was, her box office figure was 2 and a half two, billion? 2.1 yeah. billion, yeah. And that's that's like um that's amazing, and, and all of those movies that she made that money in, they're all very much driven by her. I mean, you can look at Samuel, Samuel L. Jackson's box office, but a lot of the movies that, or Harrison Ford, but a lot of the movies those guys were in were huge because they were huge, and they were beneficiaries of that. They added their part to it, but they, they weren't the determining factor in those movies being huge, where Sandra Bullock really drove the movies of hers that were big. Yeah, in that year especially, like the Blind Side. How much did it make? Right? Is anybody two hundred and fifty million? Okay, two hundred and fifty million for the Blind Side. Come on now, uh, she's in a movie that makes two hundred and fifty million. She's nominated for an Oscar. She's going to win. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy, right? How many women can do that? How many women stars can do that? Not many. Me next to him, right? Like Jessica Lange and King Kong. <laughs> Hey, does Michael get the family discount at Taco Bell? Because if he does, Sean's going to lose a few stores. <laughs> He's a good kid. Well, I say you make it official and just adopt him. <laughs> uh, he's going to be 18 in a few months. Doesn't really make much sense to legally adopt. Leanne, is this some sort of white guilt thing? What will your daddy say? Um, Before or after he turns over in his grave? Daddy's been gone five years, Elaine. Make matters worse, you were at the funeral. 
Remember? You wore Chanel and that awful black hat. Look, here's the deal. I don't need y'all to approve my choices, all right? But I do ask that you respect them. You have no idea what this boy's been through, and if this is gonna become some running diatribe, I can find an overpriced salad a lot closer to home. Leanne, I'm so sorry. We didn't intend to... No, we didn't, really. I think what you're doing is so great. To open up your home to him and... Honey, you're changing that boy's life. No. He's changing mine. And that's awesome for you, but what about Collins? What about Collins? Aren't you worried? I mean, even just a little... He's a boy, a large black boy, sleeping under the same roof. Shame on you. We've talked before, too. You've talked about it a lot on Twitter and on, and, and on the site about the, 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 the way that the foreign box office take is become, has grown to be such importance in, in a movie's overall take. This is one of the rare exceptions when a movie can earn $255 million domestically and barely make any kind of showing at all internationally. It only made $50 million overseas. So it's an 82-17% split, which you never see anymore. Well, you had all yeah. the crazy Christians. I mean, that's a right. Lot of the yes, money. definitely. She's incredibly popular in the Christian community. Mm -hmm. Leanne, yeah. whatever her name is, the one who um, mm -hmm. Leanne you know, Tui or whatever. Leanne Tui. Yeah, this is like that. That that was sort of the the. Um, it was the church bus movie it where people church leave church bus, on Sunday afternoon also, and go down, take a bus to the theater. It was that, but it was also you know it was also at, the actors loved it because it had st it was crossovers with the word I'm trying. It's not like okay. Jesus is real or whatever that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> heaven is real, that horrible movie. All this, heaven like, is real, let's heaven. say that. <laughs> Any one of a handful of church bus movies. This, this trend, All those other movies are trying to be the blind side, and they never have even come close. Yeah, 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 exactly. But um, they would all be the blind side if Sandra Bullock was in them. All Sandra Bullock has to do is show up in one of those Christian movies, and it's going to be the same thing all over again. You know, I wish, But she wouldn't, because those movies are terrible. And I wish that she... I wish that the blind side wasn't... That it didn't give short shrift to what's his name. Because the thing is, is he actually, I'm sorry to say what's his name. <laughs> short shrift to what's his name. There you go. <laughs> what's his name? The football star. Oh, God. The kid. Whatever his name was. I can't um, think. Anyway, he even he I said, can't pronounce his last name properly, so I'm not going to try. Even he said that he didn't feel that the movie treated him the way that he really is. And when you see him... The, speak, actual, act, the actual person in the real yeah, life the or guy. the actor? No, the real guy. He thought mm -hmm, that yeah. it was mm -hmm. like, he, he doesn't really talk like that. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't act like that. And I wish that they hadn't done that. I wish they hadn't made him a Negro. <laughs> like, I wish they hadn't done that because I, the only reason is, is that everything else about the movie I love, you know? I, I just, I luxuriate in Sandra Bullock's performance. I love her nails and her clothes and her hair and everything about her. I just hate that anytime he's on screen, it's just like, oh, God. It turns into the Green Mile. <laughs> no, the Green Mile's better. <laughs> Way better. <laughs> so that makes me sad about that, that movie. That That's... Even though she did a good thing, you know, what the hell, it was all about football, and she, you know, she did mentor that kid, you know, she did take him in in a fucking racist part of the country, and, you know, they're all fucking racists, and, uh, sorry. And that's undeniable, no that's doubt about it. That's the thing that, that appealed to me about it, and I, maybe I have the luxury of watching a movie not through the lens of a black person because I'm a white man, but 
you could take you could change the color of that character and it would still be the same it would still be the same movie they he, they made him black because that was the way the real guy was but it's a it's a christian family taking a kid from the wrong side of the tracks because they saw something in him and doing what they could actually you know the the the, the first Christians we ever see actually doing what the Bible teaches you to do and right. to do things for people who are who are who don't have the same chances even though it made their life inconvenient. I thought it was a nice just from that standpoint it was a nice mm-hmm. message to 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 people who consider themselves Christians but don't really live as Christians. That's a great That's way to sum to it up. That's perfect. You know, it, it shows Christians finally doing something to- acting like Christians, acting like Christians are supposed to be as taught by the Bible. That's a perfect way to sum it up. Although I will say that it also absolves a lot of Christians who go to see the movie thinking like, yeah, that's us. And it's really not them at all. If they really examine their own lives, they would see that very few, or not very few, I don't even, can't estimate the number, but a a lot of Christians do not act like Christians at all. Right. A perfect world, one of those kind of Christians would go to this movie and go, wow, you know what, I've been doing this wrong and I need to rethink my my own grasp of religion, but you know that probably didn't happen very much. Well, well, God, we can God hope that happened him. with some people, but I I'm, I'm think it was probably not common. God help him if he had been gay, right? Because oh right, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. um, Well, he wouldn't have been good at football then. <laughs> right. No, but they they got themselves a nice nice black boy. <laughs> he's a nice black boy. You know, some of them they ain't that nice, but he's a nice black boy. <laughs> so we took him into our home. We we've talked way too much about the movies we all <laughs> like the least. <laughs> But that's all right. You know, I don't mind that. I mean, we, in just in this past ten minutes, you two have just, made me see things about the movie that I, had, until now, never thought about. So I'm glad we com- did. I can see the commenters going, "Why did they talk about the blind side of all the movies?" You forgot to talk about all the movies we actually like, you assholes. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about. But can we also say? I'm sorry to say, but this was the year of up in the air. <laughs> Can we just not even talk about that one? Up in the air, right? I I would just remember, you know, from seeing from far away and seeing Telluride. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, the gondolas were rocking in Telluride when everyone saw Up in the Air because every all those guys, all the blogger boys, identify with that movie so much because it was it showed like a transition in their lives between Peter Pan adult and a grown up adult, right? I have to say, I loved the movie when I first saw it. I really did. It was my American hustle that year. I, in the moment, I thought it was great. In fact, I think if you look back, there's a rave review of it on Awards Daily that I wrote of it. And uh, But then 15 minutes after it was over, I'm like, wait a minute. What the hell was I thinking? I know. When I saw it again, I thought, oh. But but it, the up in the air is an interesting Oscar story because it really is literally up in the air, poof, and it was gone because by the time it got to the Oscars... Um, Jason Reitman had been winning everything. He won. He has won more awards for writing heading into the Oscars than any writing contender I've ever seen in 15 years. And so he was like, the thought of him losing was one of those rare Academy things that just doesn't happen. Of course, he lost to jo- Jeffrey Flesch- Fletcher for um, Precious, which did really well with the Academy, which they really liked. But what happened with Jason Reitman was he... He decided to do a really stupid thing and to sue his co-writer for some weird reason, right in the middle of Oscar season for sole credit. And that pretty much killed his chances. On top of the fact that he's not that likable anyway and that people see him as, like, daddy's boy, you know? 
Um, yeah, it may have even killed his future chances. I think that left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. People were just like, really? You've been given the fucking, you know, silver spoon and a perfect life, and you make this movie that everybody loves, and you're winning all these awards, and you're going to sue? You're going to be like, greedy about it and want to take sole credit when it's so obvious that the Writers Guild knows what they're doing when they when they award credits for movies like this. They don't do it for no reason well, at all. And he lost. That was mm-hmm. I know. But And up to that point, they were falling over themselves giving him awards and it's like the you had to give them a reason to not want to give him an award for him to lose and he did and what they did instead was award the first black writer uh in academy history so that was a that was for them an easy choice right entitled prick versus (laughs) first black screenwriter i don't think he's an entitled i have to like revise my assessment of jason ryman because i do think that he's he's grown up and matured a lot as a storyteller um that year he probably learned a really hard lesson because it was probably really embarrassing for him to lose he probably knew it was a dick move after he did it he's like whoops i shouldn't have done that i was going to try to count up how many awards he won running how many awards he won running up to the oscars and i lost count at about 50 it says that he he's he has 62 wins on imdb so and i'm sure most of those almost all of them for are for up in the air so he had like 62 wins going into the oscars it simply doesn't it simply doesn't happen that you win that many and you don't win the oscar it doesn't happen so that's how you know something weird was afoot um it was the suing in my opinion that that derailed his chances in the last the last act there and he'll have to live with that and he probably feels terrible that he did it it was a stupid thing whatever publicist he had should have told him not to do it Mm -hmm. they may have Um, but you know at the end of the day he's going to do what he's going to do yeah i guess he just didn't want to stand on stage with a co-writer he had to anyway you know when he won the writer's guild award (laughs) but (laughs) it may and i i think i remember too there were a couple of his stage performances the same thing that happened with, with james cameron where he really came across really arrogant not only if you didn't know anything at all about the lawsuit you would still get the feeling that you don't want to see this guy on stage at the kodak theater because he's yeah. he acts too entitled it just shows you how much is about likability and you know it was a really frustrating thing that stupid lawsuit because in the end it turned out that the guy who wrote the original screenplay did have a lot left in the screenplay that ended up on screen so jason yeah. raymond was wrong on on uh-huh. top of all of that because it was easily provable that the guy had written stuff that was pivotal so i don't know why he made that uh i don't know who goaded him into it what horrible evil person made him do it, it I, you know, I just don't even think that it's just anyone goading him into it i just think that it maybe is in someone's nature to want to take all the credit for something that you that you know is a smash hit and not want to share the credit with anyone and that's a strange thing for someone to have I that know. attitude it is first of all we already have an embarrassment of riches my god you're so yeah. lucky you know um, but but it seems weird to me that he would have taken it that far, you know, that, that it would, I don't know. Anyway. Especially when he's already getting mucho credit for being a director and the producer on it. Yeah. You know, it's like he, he, he wanted everything. Or maybe he just really hated that guy for whatever reason. They had a fu- mm. falling out and just I, couldn't stand each other. Until that it was seems personal. like it, yeah. doesn't it? It seems like a really personal. It could be. It could be that that guy was, like, annoying him. Like, why aren't I on any of these interviews? Why aren't I getting these cover stories? Right. Why aren't people talking about me? Why isn't my career being improved by this? Why is it Jason Reitman this, Jason Reitman that? Why is How it- come when we accept a award, you hog the microphone and I don't get to say anything? <laughs> <laughs> right? Awkward. 
word. How come nobody knows my fucking name? <laughs> right, don't even thank me. Don't even look in my direction. What the and, fuck is and wrong And the person with you? Who, who won Best Screenplay that year, who beat Jason Reitman, was uh, the guy who wrote Precious, which yeah. was unexpected, I think. It was, yeah, it was. And he was the first black film uh, writer to ever win that award. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the year started with Up in the Air, the Telluride uh, condolos were rocking. Actually, mm-hmm. Hurt Locker had already come out because it had come out the year before, or it had, it had been seen the year before, and then it was Hurt held, Locker's, I'm sorry. It was held for release to the following year, so everybody was worried that it would get the short shrift and it would fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And the only reason it didn't was because the critics held it aloft. So I do a lot of bashing of the critics, but I have to give them entirely 100% credit on keeping Hurt Locker alive. It's not just the critics, though, because it, it, it debuted at Toronto and everybody loved it, and then it kind of disappeared. But then the Spirit Awards stepped in in winter of 2008, and they nominated it, and it won... And that kind of kept the spark going, and it ended up getting released in the summer of 2009. But I think the Spirit Awards had a lot to do with that. Yeah, probably. It won Sp- the Spirit Award uh, early in the year before it even was released in America. Is that what you're that's saying? What that's what I'm saying. Yeah, okay, yeah. right. Yeah, exactly right. It came yeah. out Toronto 2008. Mm-hmm. At the end of 2008, the Spirit Awards nominated it, and it won in the Spirit Award in 2009, and then was released in the summer of 2009. Yeah, and its strong reviews um, kept it aloft in the awards race. It didn't make any money, so a lot of people... This is why, heading into Telluride, people didn't see the Hurt Locker coming, because Mm. it didn't make any money. And by the time Telluride hit, Up in the Air was the movie that everybody was talking about for Best Picture. If you go back and you look at the Gurus of Gold predictions right around that time, Up in the Air is the number one movie. I even had it, I think, as Best Picture to win. I did pretty Mm. quickly thereafter switch it to the Hurt Locker, and I, I stayed with the Hurt Locker all the way through, whereas... I have to say, poor David Poland had Avatar all the way through to the end. But we'll talk about Avatar in a minute. Um, One thing about the, uh, the Hurt Locker, can I just jump in and, and blow my own horn a little bit? I think I, I emailed you in like January or February that year, Sasha, halfway halfway through the Hurt Locker, and I said, I think I'm watching the best picture of the year. Mm-hmm. That was before I'd seen anything else that was coming up that year. And also, you're getting, you get your name on posters and, 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 and TV commercials a lot for things that you write on the site, you know, being quoted. This was the first time that I had ever been quoted on a movie poster yeah. and we were hearing about it i was hearing about it from readers who were saying your name's on a poster that i saw in the lobby of a theater and you went to a theater in in the valley someplace and took a photograph of the poster and my name is this huge on the poster and i hadn't even written a review for the movie but i had posted the trailer and i said to introduce the trailer it's pulse pounding nerve jangling and heart wrenching and that's the quote that they used on the poster with my name emblazoned across the poster for the heart locker it's so, fantastic. so i'm really I'm, that's something i'll always be proud of if nothing yeah. else ever happens to me that's something i can always take to my grave absolutely and you knew what a great movie it was and that's the thing about that movie and a movie like no country for old men what kept it aloft was how good it was yes mm. as soon as people got wind of this idea that it was a woman about to win maybe gonna win maybe mm. in the oscars that caught fire for sure but also the movie itself, if you look at the lineup, The Hurt Locker, A Serious Man, An Education, Avatar, District 9, Inglorious Bastards, Precious, The Blind Side, Up, Up in the Air. The Hurt Locker is clearly, in my mind, the best, most accomplished film of all those ten, with a possible exception, 
asterisk of a serious man because it's Coen's and Avatar because it broke so many rules. Like those two movies to me, in retrospect, give a little bit of heat to the Hurt Locker and the canon. But I look at these movies and I know a lot of people disagree with me. And I think fucking yeah, the Hurt Locker was the best. Easily. Mm -hmm. It was the best choice of the ten for me, hands down. It wasn't um, my favorite movie at the time, but history has shown that to be, I think, the best choice because it's one of those movies that operates on a pure gut level of entertainment. It's entertaining as hell, but then it also... It, it's, the, it's the rare anti-war movie that doesn't make you hate the people who are being forced to fight the war. Rather, it asks you to see the horrible things that we're doing to them. And at the time that that came out, we were still balls deep in, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. And this was the first movie that really that really broke through. There, there had been other movies about those wars, and all of them were basically kicked to the curb as either being terrible or just audiences weren't interested. But this was one that was both a good movie and a good message at the same time. Stay there. Stay. Tell me what you know about Beckham. For whom? Beckham, 12-year-old boy, body bomb. Stay right there. I don't know. You don't know? But uh, please, sit down. I'm Professor Nabil. This is my home. Mm -hmm. You are uh, a guest. Please, sit down. I'm a guest. I'm just I'm looking for, for the the people responsible for, for, for Beckham. You are CIA, no? I am very pleased to see CIA in my home. Please, sit. Be careful, the gun can go off. Do you mean anti-war movies about Iraq or any, any war movies in general? Specifically about Iraq, but this uh -huh. is an anti-war movie in general. But it, right. it, was, it, it was an Iraq movie that happened to be an anti-war movie. And I think also it really tapped into the, to everyone's exhaustion about being in Iraq at just the right time because... Um, Let's see, what was the 2000 election? That was when, uh, 2008 election was when, was when Obama was elected, right? And so people, we were finally rid of Bush. We were finally past that, and everyone was finally free to think, to talk about and feel, express clearly how they felt about being in, in Iraq and knowing that, it, that, that our, everyone's patience had run out. And it's so rare, really, to see a movie made about America's involvement in a war that is released during that war, when the war is still ongoing. Right, because the, all the, for instance, all the Vietnam movies came out in the, in the mid or late 70s after the war had already ended. Right, people were really—it's it's thought to be too 
uncomfortable for people to watch a movie about a war that we're currently involved in. But this movie broke the rules about that. Well, because we were in a quagmire, and mm -hmm. this is the first movie to really um, illustrate that, that what, what was happening in Iraq was it was kind of a circular dog chasing its own tail, war for the sake of war. It, um, but the perfect metaphor uh, for the Jeremy Renner character, we have to give credit to Mark Bowl for this, which is the end of the movie, he can't really deal with real life anymore. He can't right. handle it. He's got to go right back in. He's got to go right back in. And it's the circular, unending, every scene in that movie um, highlights that futility of the war. You know, whether it's him thinking that the that Beckham, his little friend Beckham, is the kid in the who's wounded, and he goes through all this this ritual to to honor this kid. He seeks out his who he thinks is his murderer, and it turns out the kid's alive. Right, it's he was like, almost like a delusional and that, imagining and having a about hallucination about this about his about the kid being killed when it, when the kid was really all right. Well, think about but the Iraq War. It's like it's like a, an act of futility because we were chasing mm -hmm. things that weren't there. We were chasing WMDs which were not there. It was the craziest war. It was a war for nothing. It was a war for an illusion. And her film, uh, and, and I put this right up with Paths of Glory in this way, and Doctor Strangelove. These two movies are, it really. really Really did to me, you know. Uh, I don't know. It, it epitomized that futility of that particular war. Paths of Glory is an excellent comparison. I hadn't even thought of that ever before, but that's an excellent comparison. We're I still like that. fighting that war, by the way. We're just yeah. back in Iraq again. I know. That's see. That's what I mean about the hurt locker coming out right in the middle of, of our involvement, and it was. It came out six or seven years after we invaded Iraq, and here we are, six or seven later, six or seven years after the hurt locker one best picture and we're still in Iraq. Mm, yeah, I know. The thing about it though is I think that the reason why it got away with it is because it isn't it doesn't take an explicitly political stand on right. the war in Iraq. It 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 takes a stand on war itself and the scene that Sasha mentioned about where he comes home and he can't deal with being home anymore and you start to see you start to see what we're doing to these young men who we're teaching to fight, and that turns out to be all they're good at after yes. that, and it ruins them for everything else. It, 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 was, it was still considered unpatriotic to be against the war for a long time, but this movie was able to do it by being more of a general question about war rather than an explicit we shouldn't be in Iraq statement. She took a lot of heat for that too because I remember seeing her on Rachel Maddow saying, no, we're very pro-soldier, you know, we talked to army guys to make sure we got it right. Just like with Zero Dark Thirty, she tried very hard not to take a side. She wasn't saying in her mind that this was an anti-war movie. To me, um, I guess it is, you see what you want to see. But to me, what I saw was absolutely an anti-war movie, absolutely a movie that was anti that war, because it was a war of futility. And every scene in that movie backs it up. Yes, it could be told about any story, but at least with World War II, you were fighting a seen enemy. You were fighting a, a clear right and a clear wrong. In Iraq, that was not the case. We were unseating a dictator we thought could potentially hurt us because he potentially had weapons of mass destruction, trying to avenge 9-11. And only because we were only thinking that because that's what we had been lied to and told, right? right. That's even worse when looking back on it in retrospect. The only reason we ever thought that, that we were under any threat from Saddam Hussein is because that's what the lies were telling us. And then the beautiful scenes of the, I mean, forget just the message of it. If you just want to talk about the story itself, it's like these three characters. 
Anthony Mackie and Anthony Mackie, um, Brian Garrity. Brian, right, there we go. Brian Garrity and Jeremy Renner. Well, Garrity, that kid, you know, when he's he 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 opens up to the the therapist, the war therapist, and he's takes him a really long time to do that, and he finally opens up to him, and he forges a bond with him, and boom, the guy's gone. He just gets ex- mm-hmm. he just gets blown up in some crazy bomb, and that kid, it destroys him emotionally. And the same thing happens to to Jeremy. To Jeremy Renner, he's trying to rescue that Iraqi who wants the bombs taken off of him, and he's emotionally involved. He's trying really hard. The guy's like, I made a mistake. I really, please take these. He's like, I can't. There's too many locks. There's too many locks. And boom, the guy explodes. It's like, Mm. no matter what they do, they're fighting a losing battle. You know, none Mm. of, they can't achieve any successes in this war. I know we've had our differences. Hell, you Like it happened, all right? It's water under the bridge. James, this is suicide, man. That's what they call a suicide bomb, right? Let's do this. Come on. He says the bomb may have a timer. Please hurry. <laughs> We're good. You in now? Yep. <laughs> Go get him. Let's do it. See you. Watch for snipers, yep. huh? Get your hands up. He says he has a family. Please help. Look, it'd be a lot easier for me to disarm this if I just shoot you. Do you understand? What's he saying? He says, I don't wish to die. I have a family. Please take this off me. I will tell him to put his hands behind his head or I'll be very happy to shoot him. Look, that's not what I said. Tell him to put his hands behind his head or I will shoot him. Listen. Listen. Yes, yes. Yes. You understand. Okay. Oh. What do you got here? And the Arabat spot. He has four children. Shit. Can listen. Can listen, Sarah. Sam, we got a timer. We got a lot of wires, man. I'm gonna need a little help on this. Roger that. Tell me what you need. Uh, the bolt cutters. We just gotta get down here in two minutes. We're all fucked. Roger that. I'll be there in 30 seconds. Sir, Allah, He says, please, I have a family. I know, I know. Just. It's okay. You're all right. You're all right. Please don't leave me. Yeah, Rab. Yeah, Rab. You weren't fucking kidding. Nope. What's this made out of? Get out! Get out! Shit. 
Oh, man. That's case hard and steel. Shit. What's our time? We got two minutes. Shit. We're gonna need a torch to get this off. Well, we don't have one of those in a fucking truck, man. You're a dead man. Hold on, let me think. Just let me think. Let's handle this. We're gonna have It's okay. We got this. We got this. Good lips. Okay. I'm listening. Let me look at the back. Just, we don't got enough time, Sam. We don't got enough time. I just got to get these bolts off. No. We had a minute and a half, man. We got to get out of here. No. I'll handle this. Just, just go. Look, Will. Come on, I'm, man. Look, I'm right behind you. Just go. Fuck him. Come on. Let's go. Sam, what I got the suit. Just go. James. Hey, Sam, you have 45 <laughs> seconds. You have 45 seconds, Sam. Leave. He's a fucking dead man, Will. Go. Oh. Everybody get back. Go, go, go. We got one. Go, get back! Get back! I'm sorry. There's too many locks. There's too many. I can't do it. I can't get it off. I'm sorry, okay? You understand? I'm sorry. You hear me? I'm sorry. I'm sorry! Get down! Yeah, it's been a couple of months since I've seen it. I, I watch it every year or so, and it's been a couple of months since I've seen it. But it it never gets it it I never I never I never find anything that I don't like about it. Anything that I that I wish had been different. It's 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 really pretty much close to the perfect film as far as pacing yeah. and. And the first time I saw it, I think that I felt like that it was a little bit episodic. That that and that I knew that it hung together really well, but I wished that it had more of a through line plot wise. But that, I understand now that that's that it was really a reflection of what the war experience must really be like. But it does have a through line. I mean, it, it definitely has a plot. You know, it's it's really it's it's funnily enough a coming of age story in a way. But it's a coming of war, mm-hmm. coming of age. I see that. Yeah, I can see that. Um, it's interesting to think about the hurdles that it had to jump over to in order to to win. I mean, it's it's amazing that it won at all, considering how little money it actually made. But there was there was the um, the the producer unwisely sent a email to the members of the academy, which was a huge no no, and it seemed like that might scotch its chances. And it was this also the movie where people were whispering that it was really Mark Bowles' movie and not Catherine Bigelow, or was yeah. that Zero Dark Thirty that they did no, that? No, that one? was this one too. That was this one. This yeah. one too. That was the whisper campaign, and I actually got in a huge fight with Pete Hammond over that uh, Nicholas Chartier email, and he still brings it up to this day when I see him because I accused him of being in in the pocket of the rival. Studio and in fact, they did actually tattletale on that guy because Absolutely. it was the the publicists who did it. It was and they fed spoon fed it to um, Chartier and and at the time I thought it was uh, Weinstein because they had Inglorious Bastards, which we can talk about next because I know all of our listeners you know they're Inglorious Bastards fans. <laughs> but um, but I thought it was Harvey Weinstein, but it actually wasn't. It was a different studio. Um, but. <clears throat> the Weinstein Co. weren't involved in those shenanigans. Uh, Hammond may not have been in that produce that 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 publicist's pocket, but he 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 was he was doing it for his own interest because it was a juicy story. Yeah. But he still played into that to the interest it, that that came out simply to try and 
kill the Hurt Locker, and it didn't yeah. work. And no, I'm it glad. didn't, because a lot of times these these uh, controversies actually have a rebound effect. They don't really work to sink a movie. Rather, people rally to defend the movie. That's why a lot of times you see these kind of controversies spring up, like Kim Novak saying that uh, the artist shouldn't use the vertigo music. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the, Every time there's a Weinstein movie in contention, um, you know there's going to be a controversy because that's their game. They like to create the controversy so that people to votes of support in an overwhelming way that, that you never have. It's, it's because, a re- because enough people see through the transparency of that and know what's going on and to, to want to re- not only resist it, but to but to try to foil it, try to foil any attempt to undermine a movie that is, yeah. that is ought, ought not to be admired. Right. For instance, after I read that, you know, my site went on full-blown, guns-blazing defense mm-hmm. of The Hurt Locker, nonstop, constant defense of that movie and her... Um, the only real competition the Hurt Locker had uh, were two movies. And Glorious Bastards was never going to win, although people thought that it had a chance. And Avatar. And not, Avatar did not have a chance because I'm sorry, but the Academy is ruled by actors and they are not going to pick a movie that is mostly performance capture. They're not. They're just not going to do it. It takes away their bread and butter, uh, their faces, their business. They're not ready to make that leap. Interesting how this relates to the other half of the podcast that we did earlier about the Congress, how the Congress is all about eliminating the actors from the equation altogether, digitize the actors so that so that you can do anything you want with the image of the actor, and you don't have to worry about any sort of, uh, uh, you know, difficult actor personality to deal with. You just yeah. digitize them and, and make them do whatever you want. Right. And that's exactly what do that. This way, in a way, the Congress scares me a little bit because I, you see a movie like Network that you realize... 10 or 15 years later, how prescient it was. I hope that we don't feel the same way about the Congress 10 or 15 years from now to see what it was foretelling. The Oscars are are fighting a sea change, and one of the things they're holding on for dear life is is the the actor-dominated movie. Gravity came close to winning because it was dominated by Sandra Bullock and and George Clooney, and that threw them off. But Avatar is a no-brainer. In fact, Avatar was so weak with the Academy, it didn't even win the two sound awards, like everybody predicted. Mm -hmm. Fucking Hurt Locker, which I was happy to predict, by the way, won Mm -hmm. both sound awards. And that shows you how little they liked Avatar. They didn't even pick it for sound, which was an easy get for them. Um, sound was huge in that movie. There was it was all war ballistics. Um, Hurt Locker beat it in both those categories. Um, uh, Precious turned out to be a lot more popular with the Academy than than Avatar. So. The weak link in Avatar shows up in the nominations. It wasn't nominated for Best Screenplay, and it's really, it's almost, I mean, how can you imagine a movie winning Best Picture that or that doesn't even, can even be nominated for Best Screenplay? So that, in a way, that, that was the same thing that happened with Gravity, that I was saying that I felt like that the, I know a lot of people disagree with this, and I've come around to, to understand that the gra- Gravity, the premise alone is extraordinary for Gravity, but the screenplay, as far as the dialogue and stuff goes, was the weak link, yeah. and that's what, James Cameron's problem is with Avatar is he cannot write dialogue that doesn't sound corny. Yeah, he. Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. To me, it works in, in Aliens and it works in The Abyss. Um, it works it, fine for the it movie. It doesn't get in the way in the, as much in Titanic because Titanic is already so corny, mm-hmm. but it, it really kills Avatar. And I, I, I know. I've been, I've been unkind to Avatar over the years and I still think that if it had one, it would have been an around the world in 80 days like gaff on the part of the Academy of giving it to it. But 
you know, I have to I have to give Cameron a lot of credit, and the and the story of Avatar is actually sort of interesting because it was buzzed about for several years before we even so much as saw a still or a, a production photograph from it. Then it finally it it. it they played some of it at Comic-Con that year, and it bombed miserably. Everybody just took the piss out of it and were convinced that it was going to be this miserable failure. And it was, it was as though we were right before Titanic again, when everybody was predicting that Cameron was going to fall on his face, and finally his ego was going to get the best of him, and he was going to have this huge failure. Then it finally came out and made over a billion dollars worldwide and I have to hand it to the dude because even though I don't like it that much you watch it now and it's still an interesting visual spectacle but it's also it's not a sequel it's not a comic book movie it's not based on some cartoon toy commercial from when we were all little kids it's cobbled together from ideas from a bunch of other places but so was Star Wars and he's making a new thing out of it and it's 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 not an uninteresting thing and I as little as I like his personality and as much as i've been critical of him over the last 10 years or so that i've been talking about movies i i have to admire him for the coups that he's pulled off in terms of delivering entertainments that people want to see well your comparison to uh, around the world in 80 days is, is excellent because he's the same sort of showman that mike todd was a showman and cecil demille is a showman uh, Cameron really knows how to put on a fantastic show that's going to wow people, and he's he, he he's unbeatable as far as that goes. Obviously, where he wouldn't have the top two worldwide box office hits of all time. He has made, I was talking to Emma about this, he has inexplicably made the best and worst films at the exact same time. Like, Titanic is, like, one of the best films ever made, and it's one of the worst films ever made at exactly the same time. <laughs> same with Avatar. Right. Like, I, I will never, probably never top the experience I had when I first saw Avatar with 3D glasses in the movie theater. Um, went back to see it, like, three times in the theater. And it was an experience unlike anything I've ever, you know, not to repeat myself, but ever experienced in the theater because it was... And let me just throw this theory um, at you guys and, and run it by you. It's, a, it's an immersive experience. And what we're talking about right now is the very, very um, popular movement of video games on cinema. And what video games do, and I know because my daughter's really involved in them, is provide an immersive experience where it's interactive and you're in this world and you're seeing things you've never seen and it feels like you're really there, right? It's projection. It's almost astral projection. And that's what Avatar is to me. It's a hybrid of the movement of, of, of video games and cinema. It's not really cinema. 
it's more like video game cinema, you know, which is, is becoming more and more popular right now as we speak. But it, it's fair to judge it on that those terms. That's why I really think the Academy should evolve forward and have a separate category for this, for effects-driven films like Avatar, because if they're never going to be Best Picture winners, they shouldn't be, because they're not purely cinema. They're more than cinema. They're immersive. They're interactive. There's something else going on. It's approaching virtual reality almost because it, it it comes off of the screen and wraps around you, so it puts you in the middle of 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 what you're seeing on screen more than right. any other movie that I had ever seen previously. The only other, I believe, the only other 3D movie I'd ever seen up until Avatar was Coraline, I think Coraline, and so Coraline, and so I believe that that's uh, so. I had not only it was it was immersive when you first see it, but I had never seen anything like it before. And it, I was the same way as you, Sasha. I went to see it three or four times in the theater before I started to realize that I had had enough of it, that I never yeah. wanted to see it again, really, that's because it. I, I'd already had that experience, and it was beginning to, to pale for me, and I was not enjoying the ride anymore. Now, he gives you, I think, Cameron, a lot more than most directors in this genre do. Like, I think he tries to give you an emotional experience, which Avatar is. He does give you that but Emma set tells me that video games give you that too it's just that they're not cinema they're not traditional st- storytelling um, they're in their own group that are genre they're in their own distinctive and I think it's fair to categorize them as such and I think it's fair to see how movies are changing in so much that when you pay for a ticket you're really paying for a ticket to ride it's a ticket mm-hmm. to ride it's the a difference, movie. though, and the reason why an experience like Avatar is not as good as a good video game experience, because as in a video game, you're a participant, whereas with Avatar, it's just happening in front of you. You might feel like you're in it because of the fake 3D, but you're really not. You're, you have no control over what's happening on the screen. It just unfolds, and and that's it. So it's it, I, I don't... I think you're right. I think it's an attempt to capture that video game feeling, but I mm-hmm. actually think video games in that way are superior to a movie like Avatar. Well, you have to wonder if at some point in the future um, that's going to not be the case, that you're going to be sitting right. there. Craig, we went to see a movie the other day, and we were in this like really luxurious theater where it's like these leather seats that, that you know lean back and, and um, really like you know supreme comfort and you have to wonder how and they're doing all this stuff with 3d like how far away away from being able to project ourselves into the movie and we're also well, what was interesting too about that theater is that there were there were glass panels between the rows so you're isolated from all of the other people in the theater except for the people right next to you and i think in order for there to be a real video game movie it's going to become less and less of a communal experience for better or for worse because yeah. if one person is is in charge of their own environment then nobody else can be so it's going to be a right. unique experience for each person and just be a completely different thing that's what i was about to worse. say there are movies there's been talk for the past 10 or 15 years about movies where you get to choose which pathways the plot takes on your on an individual basis that you can choose it's like the movie is a flow chart and you choose which arrow you want to take which you know left or right up or down movie you want to what direction you want to go and that's where the movie will take you because it has all these different alternate person um, possibilities right that doesn't even seem like a movie to me though no, and it isn't to me either. Like, I watched The Purge Anarchy, and that just seems like a video. I mean, I'm not, and, and, and to a degree, Snowpiercer, like, these movies, they have, I'm not dismissing them by saying they're like video games, but there is a lot to them that follows the structure of video games. You go to the next level, you go to the next level, you go to the next level, you reach the end. Mm-hmm. Um, even 
this beautiful the Congress has that to it, you know. Um, then the Congress comments on that, and then while it's doing that, it also it comments on the fact that it's doing that and makes you aware that it's yeah. doing that in a way that no other movie I've ever seen tr attempts an, to do. So you're conscious, totally conscious of the fact of what is happening. Another one that did that back in the 70s, I will say, is 2001. It did it in a really abstract way, not in a, you know, feed you exactly what you want way. It wasn't meant to do that, but it, it does follow that same... In a lot of ways, they're all springing from that structure of 2001 you know you start here you go there you go there you go there you end up here you know mankind basically is what is what's happening in 2001 but but it's that that experience that scope you start here you end here and story is less important than journey you know Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly enough, Catherine Bigelow sort of explored that a little bit with Strange Days, and Cronenberg did with the Videodrome, where you actually are not only the, the you you put on a, a headset and you're inside the the plot of the movie, right? Right, right. And these mm -hmm. guys were exploring it long before it became a reality. Well, now it's a reality, mm -hmm. and yeah. people mm -hmm. are looking for these immersive experiences. These generations are growing up with these. Well, they're growing up branded, first of all. That's why Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles beat the other branded movie, Guardians of the Galaxy, at the box office. You know, we have generations of ticket buyers who are fully branded, and they're really easy um, targets to spend money on, on anything that has a brand to it. Like one thing I love about Avatar, just as Craig was saying, is that it's not anything like that. It's it's wholly original. It came out of Cameron's head completely. Yes, it has movie cliches and tropes, but wow, Cameron, you know, number one movie of all time, and it's not a fucking sequel. If you I remember when you saw you saw it about a week and a half before I did, and you came back to the site writing kind of like raves about it on the site, and then I saw it uh, Christmas Eve, and I came home that night and wrote like a long, long post with 30 different things that I loved about Avatar, and I've never been able to live that post down because people, because then like two weeks later I was saying that Avatar had paled for me. I didn't find it very interesting anymore, but the post I had posted was already online. Everyone had read it about me raving about Avatar, saying that, that it was fantastic. And so it's like the situation yeah. where you where you say once that Argo is a perfect movie, and then you can they never I let know. you forget it. It's true. That was another whiplash experience for me was Avatar. But, you know, when it comes, this is the problem with both of those movies, and I tried to explain this to Chris Tapley, didn't understand, is that, yes, it's one thing to be, you can have a, a plate of um, cupcakes, and the first one you taste is the best cupcake you've ever tasted in your life. Wow, that is a really effing good cupcake. You taste the next one. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's not as good as the first one. You taste the third one. Wow, that's really good. And it's not as good. Then you taste the last one. And you go, oh my god, that is the best cupcake on this plate. That is the best cupcake. <laughs> it's you know, it's it's got everything about it that's perfect. And you can't even just talk about the structure. You got to talk about the ingredients. And and I've never tasted anything like it. And wow, that's incredible. It blows away that first cupcake, even though 10 minutes ago you just said that was the best cupcake you've ever eaten, you know. But mm -hmm. just, just because something comes along later that's better doesn't negate what you said about the thing that you had before the better thing came along, right? Right, and the thing with, with Argo, um, God, that was such a weird year, but but uh, forget Argo. Let's not even talk about Argo. What was right. Argo yeah, even up against? Been, I don't there remember. are other examples. I mean, another thing, though, about no, but, Avatar, but Avatar that the, we've all discovered, example, I think, is that... So much of the of the thrill of Avatar was the 3D experience, putting those glasses on and seeing that on screen that had never been done so so 
tech so skillfully before, and then later, a few months later, to see the movie on TV, and it looks to me like a cartoon. Yeah, and the thing is... is That's yes, the weird exactly. thing for me, is I think it's weird for me to hear everybody raving about the Avatar 3D experience, because, because I didn't have that experience when I first saw it, and I've come to learn later that I think I had a bogus 3D screening, because it um, I saw it at the Arclight, at the Cinerama Dome here, and Arclight uses a different 3D glasses technology than most of the other places. Mm-hmm. Most of the other ones are just simple plastic glasses, but these are the kind that are battery-powered, that have like shutters in them that go back and forth and when they work it's supposedly a better 3D but I think if you get a pair of glasses that is not like the battery is lame or something it doesn't work quite right and for me the entire night I was watching it and the 3D was just a distraction and I was annoyed because the glasses made it look dimmer and murkier and just the, the I, I was fighting the 3D to try and enjoy the movie right, and I, right. I it, it impacted how I felt about it on first seeing it. I actually, I think I liked it better this last time watching it now on TV than I did in the theater. I've oh. seen movies since. I've seen maybe two movies where I've loved the 3D and was glad that I saw it in 3D. So maybe maybe I just don't like 3D that much. I don't know. But it, um, it, I have it was... to just, yeah, no, I hear you on that. And if you ever see it, if it ever plays again in the theater with really good 3D, I will see if we can go together so we can watch that because that is, I mean, that is really like a blow your fucking mind experience if the 3D is right and good and you're there and that fucking red flappy dragon comes down and those wings. I mean, that is like, that was one of the most breathtaking moments I've ever seen in a film ever. However, let me just, I just need to, 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 to cycle, to circle back to, to what we were talking about before with the cupcakes. I, I just need to say, when you're talking about giving a prize to Best Picture, I, I do think that if they had given it to Avatar, it would have been a worthy winner. But I, I think that Hurt Locker is better, and here's why. When you think about Best Picture, you inevitably start thinking about what that movie means. And the problem with Avatar is it didn't really... You couldn't really do that with it. All you can do is say, wow, that was so cool. You can say, yes, it had a great message about the animals and the planet fighting back and that it was an anti... Um, and it was an environmentalist movie, and he's obviously an environmentalist, and his wife is, and that was the message, and bravo to him. But the layers um, of The Hurt Locker go so much deeper, and what it meant to our country, America, at this time, the war in Iraq, that it was dealing with something present and threatening and scary, and the way she filmed it, um, that it happens to be one of the greatest films of all time. So does Avatar. And I'm looking forward to both of them making Sight and Sound's stupid snobby list eventually. If, you know, if they ever get their shit together, they'll put it on there. Um, Hurt Locker is the better movie, ultimately. Mm-hmm. It, just has, it just has more... The, 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 as, as important as environmentalism is, the, the visceral... Uh, message of the Hurt Locker is so much more has so much more gravity and depth than 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 trying to um, illustrate environmentalism by with a lot of fictitious um, non-existent characters. Yeah. I think I think the non-existent thing is what bothers me. It's the same thing that bothered me when I saw Guardians of the Galaxy. I cannot get an emotionally invested in characters that are so absurdly bizarre that you know. I, in order for me to get really deeply emotionally invested in a character, they have to be human. 
<laughs> and without the human aspect, I can't feel, I'm not going to feel, you know, torn up if the raccoon is sad. Right, right, right. Although I did, the, the girl in that, um, I did I did really become emotionally involved with her. But um, ultimately you have to, when you're talking about best picture, you're talking about tagging a movie with, you know, best picture of the year prize, you have to be able to talk about why it deserves to win. And with Avatar, you're always getting back to, it was just really cool and the visual effects were just really cool and I've never seen anything like that before. Well, sorry, but that's not good enough to win best picture. It's good enough to win best visual effects a hundred times, sure. But... Um, but a story has to matter more. And what the funny thing is about that year was that I would go to different places in public with, with friends and stuff who weren't in the Oscar race, and they would say, so what's going to win Best Picture? And I said, I don't know. What do you think is going to win? And, and 100% of the time they said Avatar because none of them had seen The Hurt Locker. They hadn't there even heard There you go. Of it. That's it. So many people, everyone has seen the Avatar two or three times and have probably never seen The Hurt Locker. They never heard of it. They never seen it. So I got right. to say, I got to always say, no, 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 The Hurt Locker is going to win. They're like, the what? <laughs> so that was fun. Caught between those two extremes was Inglorious Bastards, which just about everyone saw who loves movies, and also was a pretty good movie. I mean, it was a you know you got to kind of have to admit that it was for the kind of thing that Tarantino does. It, it's exemplary of the kind of things that he does, and. Um, it was the first year that we ever did the simulated ballot on Awards Daily, and it, it barely edged out the Hurt Locker in the last round of balloting to win Best Picture uh, among our readers. And But it just barely uh, um, it just barely beat the Hurt Locker that year. Yeah, our readers are, are very supportive of our opinions, which is really nice, but they definitely liked the Hurt Locker. It was, I mean, uh, Inglorious Bastards was mm-hmm. the same way Pulp Fiction is like an Internet movie, Inglorious Bastards is an internet movie. And Tarantino, they all love him, you know. Um, ultimately, though, again, you're looking at a movie that is about a fantasy, not about real life. And it, it plays off of um, something very serious, the Holocaust and, and Hitler. And, uh, you know, you're just supposed to roll with it, you know. It's- yeah, it's a wish fulfillment thing that is almost like it's almost like a, a sick wish when you t- stop to think about how, how far away from the wish was reality right but stylish and beautiful and wonderful in a lot of ways hurt locker i want to, i don't want to get away from the hurt locker yet i don't want the freight train to leave the station mm-hmm. but um it's a movie that gets better when the more you think about it whereas avatar is the exact opposite that's a movie that seems less and less the more you think about it exactly very true. think about it and see it the more often that you see the hurt locker the more that i see it the more that i appreciate things that i hadn't seen before but once you see avatar for me at least three or four times i have dug as deeply as i can with that movie and i'm not finding new things about it that excite me or thrill me or fascinate me anymore but i'm just the opposite with the hurt locker right same here i mean other than design elements of avatar which are extraordinary you know Mm-hmm. But I'll, I would, I would agree that you could say the same thing about Inglorious Bastards. It was in my top ten of that year, and I still love it. But mm-hmm. it's 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 not a movie that resonates in the same way that The Hurt Locker does. It's a movie that you know it celebrates movies and movie making, and that's great. And it also happens to have a subtext to it that's important in the same way that 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 Avatar did. And it's a better movie for me all around than Avatar. But it's still not a movie that demands to be rewarded, whereas Hurt Locker very much is. 
Right, absolutely. Uh, Chris you probably, I think I have heard you talk before about how you liked previous Catherine Bigelow movies, especially maybe Blue Steel, how you were always a big fan of Blue Steel. Yeah. That's a movie that I, have, that I need to see again. I haven't seen it in a long, long time, but when I first saw it years and years ago, it didn't really strike me as anything but being just a little bit generic. But I had seen Near Dark, and uh-huh. I had seen Point Break, and had no idea that Catherine Bigelow directed it or that who she was. And did, I didn't remember that she her name was on the credits. I had no no concept of who Catherine Bigelow was when I saw Near Dark and Point Break. But those are two of my favorite cult movies from my from my own past that really mean a lot to me. And then to see her reemerge later and to find the connection between those movies. For instance, Point Break is all about camaraderie in the same way that The Hurt Locker is. And I think if you see those movies together, I think the, the similar similarities will really emerge, you know. Well, um, she's, she started out with Near Dark, um, and I, I actually went to see... <clears throat> Michael was just reminding me of this because um, we went to see the, the uh, premiere of that because we were... F- Bill Bill Paxton was a um, was a visitor was a was a customer of of oh, the, yeah? cool. the Main Street Video where Michael and I worked and where we met back in the eighties, and so I saw that movie and I saw that it was directed by a woman and I was in my early twenties and and I said oh her name is Catherine Bigelow, and I you know fell pretty hard for her and became a huge fan. And then my sister was happened to be the um, assistant to the producer on Terminator Two. And we hmm. went to the rap party. She invited me to the rap party, and I met Arnold Schwarzenegger. And at that party was Catherine Bigelow. And she, hmm. she came in because she was married to Jim Cameron, and he was having an affair with Linda Hamilton, and they were all three at this rap party. Wow. Shortly wow. thereafter, his marriage broke up, and he ended up with Linda Hamilton, um, and Catherine Bigelow was heartbroken. But what had happened after Near Dark was Cameron saw how talented she was, and he mentored her, and he really did elevate her from kind of indie filmmaker. She was a painter. Her background's in painting, and she went to Columbia Film School. Um, and he mentored her to make, you know, uh, Strange Days and, you know, these kind of big, 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 much bigger um, movies than she, she'd been used to, to making. And Near Dark is a great vampire movie. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's fantastic. It's funny. It's full of style. It's, it's brilliant. Um, but I, I followed her career because I loved Near Dark so much. And I'd been following her so much so that I ended up going to Columbia Film School because she went there. That's the only wow, I went that's to. amazing. That's great. And I love Blue Steel. Um, it's crazy Ron Silver, who's obsessed with Jamie Lee Curtis, because Jamie Lee Curtis shoots her gun um, in a robbery. And he watches her shoot it. And he becomes completely fascinated and enthralled. And he starts stalking her, seducing mm-hmm. her, and eventually trying to kill her. It's fantastic. Fantastic. I love Blue Steel. It's totally a guilty pleasure. I know the critics panned it. I know you liked it. That's why I wanted to bring it up, because I wanted to, to try and make a connection. Because a lot of times when we think of directors who win Best Director, it's because they have built up a career over the years. And it's really difficult for some people to maybe look back on Catherine Bigelow's career and realize that she had been making really excellent movies on a under the radar for a long, long time, but people well, had not really, outside of academia, had never really studied her that much. One of the unfortunate things about her is that a lot of her movies did center around female characters. Um, that movie and Point Break has really strong female uh, characters. Mm-hmm. It's just that somehow along the way she got this weird kind of stigma of being a director who only directs men, and it really isn't true. She directed Hurt Locker. It's a story about male soldiers, yes. Um, Zero Dark Thirty isn't. 
um, Blue Steel isn't, Near Dark isn't, and Point Break isn't. So she's not... Near Dark has fantastic strong female characters. And Point Break, I used to feel the same way about Point Break, as you say you feel about Blue Steel, it was a guilty pleasure, but I'm not guilty about it anymore. I encourage anyone to go back and look at Point Break now, and it's it's an absolutely fantastically well-constructed genre picture. Yeah. And it has a lot of connection to Hurt Locker as far as thematically and everything. A lot of people like... I think she's much better off outside of the Jim Cameron influence. I I don't like... Point Blank or Blue Steel very much, but I love Near Dark and Hurt Locker. I think that I, I'm glad she's she's gotten him out of her system. I think it's I think she's making movies now in a better a much better way than she's she's kind of back to her roots. She still has her signature style, um, which you can see in all of her films. That beautiful slow motion, especially with Blue Steel, you can see the way she handles bullets uh, and gunfire in that is and very similar to how she does it in the Hurt Locker. And if you're a fan of hers, which I always have been. You recognize it immediately, and um, that was one of the thrills of watching the Hurt Locker was seeing her signature style all over it. And people are, you know, and I'm always saying, you know, fucking hell, you can tell Catherine Bigelow movie if you know her work. You can absolutely tell it. That's what makes her a great director, and that's mm-hmm. what makes that. From the, the very first, the opening credit sequence of Point Break is all slow motion. Yeah. Incredibly beautiful slow motion. Oh, I know. She's really good at the mm-hmm. slow-mo, and she her paintings are beautiful. I mean, she's a, she's a really talented to woman. Um, okay, back to Inglorious Bastards. So what what is there to say about it? First, I think that it's um, the first 30 minutes of it are its best. Two things I love about it. The first 30 minutes where he's, where Shoshana, before Shoshana runs away, and any time Christoph Waltz is on screen thereafter, and the scene with... Um, Melanie Laurent with cat people in the background. Those are the moments right. of Hurt Locker that I absolutely love. The rest of it, I it, do, it doesn't really, if, I don't really think about it much. Well, Tarantino, I love the whole thing top to bottom, and I'm glad that it lost. Tarantino was great at constructing and creating fantastic set pieces that really stand out, and he strings them together sometimes really, really well, and sometimes the attachments between set pieces is not so strong. And I felt like that, as you say about in the, the sequences that you mentioned in, in, in Glorious Bastards, the set pieces were really, really good, but what held it all together wasn't gluey enough for me. It wasn't sticky enough to hold it together. Mm, I, know, I mean, I, it's funny that Christoph Waltz should get supporting when he was clearly lead. <laughs> it's ridiculous. No, yeah. He was a lead performance, as he was in the next movie that he won an Oscar for. What is wrong with the Academy? Can't they see this? Um, and actually, though, what is wrong with Tarantino that he writes supporting characters and then names the movie after somebody else? You know, Django is not even the star of his own movie. No, it's Christoph Waltz who should yeah. have been lead. Well, that was the, the the genius of Inglorious Bastards to me is because in a, in a typical World War II movie, you'd get the American soldiers and they would be these likable strong-chinned good guy heroes but in Inglorious Bastards they were all a bunch of assholes and a bunch of weirdos and losers and the most eloquent and most interesting character is the horrible bad guy and the fact that he turned the tables like that is what makes it a much more interesting movie than I think what you're giving it credit for. See, my, my problem with Tarantino, and it's only a small problem and it's not a big problem, because obviously he entertains a lot of people. He makes great movies, period. End of story. Same with Jim Cameron. Who gives a fuck what we say about Jim Cameron? He has a fucking number one and number two highest <laughs> He's sleeping on a pile of money. He of doesn't all care. Time. He has the golden key to the crapper. He can do whatever the fuck he wants with his life. He's God, okay? Fine. But 
if I had to just say, if someone asked me what my opinion was about Tarantino, what I would say was this. He draws too much from his cinema education and not enough from life education and not enough from education from other realms. So what I get when I watch a movie of his is a remix, is a is a uh, an amalgam of cinematic tropes. And he mm. puts them together in a beautiful, entertaining way. They only take you so far because you're already familiar with those tropes. So they're funny little twists on things that are familiar they're clever the dialogue is great the he's great with actors and color and his visual style is incomparable uh, he's great um but i wish that his movies were a little smarter that they were a little more thoughtful that that there was some there there other than style. because what you what you're saying about that he he draws too much on his cinema education and his cinema education he's homeschooled you know, he didn't go to college to get a cinematic education. He homeschooled himself in a video store to get his to get his cinematic education. So that's where I find, that's where his lack of intelligence shows up for me. Yeah, and that's see, if you're a, a you know, you you can only get so much of that before you kind of crave something a little. Like I think they're fun movies. They're so entertaining. Django Unchained, I think, is so entertaining and fun to watch. Um, and I, I think he's great at doing exactly what he does. I sort of wish sometimes he'd work with a different writer. He'd work with a writer other than himself. Um, he would adapt maybe sometimes, you know, not just always draw from Quentin Tarantino's cinematic universe. That's all. I wish he would do a straight-up horror film. I think that would be fantastic if he just does a straight-up horror film and just all balls out, you know, gory horror film. Because he turns everything into a gore fest anyway lately. So why not just go all the way with it and get away from the, these historical things that he's trying to do? But he, he he knew how to do with the Academy. If you want to do something with the Academy to, to gain some prestige, make your story historical instead of World War II. Yeah. See, I don't think it's fair to to dismiss him because he's not educated or smart. And I think that his real problem, and I say this as a huge fan, is that in his later years, he's been more of a movie magi- magician where he's just kind of showing off. And the last time that he really, I think, put his heart into a movie was Jackie Brown. And it got clobbered by both his fans and by critics and by audiences. It didn't, just didn't do very well. And I think that was, that was his opportunity to grow as a filmmaker. And it didn't work out. And I think he's... I, I, it's impossible for me to be in his head, but I think he's shied away from that level of emotion. He approached it a little bit with Kill Bill, um, but didn't come nearly as close as he did with with Jackie Brown, a movie that he really seemed to feel the plight of his lead character and to be trying to tell an emotional story that was interesting and not just being a, a cinematic parlor trick. I think he's reached the end of this path. I will say that Jackie Brown and 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 Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, I think they're fantastic. They're among my favorite movies of all time. But after Jackie Brown, he took a turn for the worst. And I think part of what it was, sort of related to what you were saying, Craig, is he stopped making these smaller, intimate movies that mean something personally, and he finally started making some money. And once he figured out the formula to make money, he's done that again and again for the past three movies in a row. He knows how to make the big bucks now, and that's all he seems like he wants to do. He likes and to play I, to his fans. He's playing yeah, to his fans. Exactly. He's giving them there what you they go. want, exactly what they want mm-hmm. from a quote-unquote t- Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. And he's stopped being more ex- um, experimental. I do. I love this idea that you just brought up the, of him telling a personal story. Like We know so much about the personal um, 
inner world and growing up of, say, Martin Scorsese, you know? I'm glad you mentioned him. But I don't know why there isn't more of that in Tarantino's oeuvre. Why, why there isn't more self-exploration? Like, who is Tarantino? He grew up with a single mom in the valley, and then he started working in a video store, and then he started making these wonderful movies that springboard off of other movies he saw. But who is he? You know, what is his life? You know, what are his wants? Who is his? Who are his loves? What is his experience in life? I just think that for him, he might want to start growing more as a storyteller. You know, he definitely needs to. And I'm glad that you brought up Scorsese because they're two filmmakers that, in a lot of ways, are similar. They're both. Um, intoxicated by the power of cinema and they're both deeply knowledgeable about the history of cinema and they've all they've both seen a million movies and they could give you an hour lecture on some movie that you've never seen before but the difference and the thing that elevates Scorsese so far above Tarantino is that that personal aspect you you get a feeling when you see a Scorsese movie whether it's Age of Innocence or even The Departed or you know Alice doesn't live here anymore you get a feeling you see you feel like you can see him up on the screen you're, there's something personal to it, whereas Tarantino, n- not so much. Right. I could listen to Scorsese lecture me for seven or eight hours about movies, but I couldn't stand to, sen- to listen to Tarantino lecture me for 30 minutes about movies. He would drive me Really, back. I sat in a screening of Django Unchained, and he had the entire audience enthralled just talking about shitty spaghetti B-movies that people had never seen, but just the passion and the intelligence that yeah. he mm-hmm. talked about it made you want to like those movies as much as he did. He knows I've seen so movies. Much. I mean, I've seen clips of him talking, and I have to. I can only stomach so much at a time. It was pretty it's great, I have to admit, listening to him talk. But the but the, but the difference is is, is we've seen from um, Scorsese, we've seen uh, Italian American, we've heard his story millions of times about how he was an asthmatic kid. He's drawn from that in the stories that he's picked. Um, he centers around you know misfit outsider kids in a lot of his films. He brings himself up a lot in interviews. And he he is telling his own personal stories with his films uh, again and again. I don't know what Tarantino's personal stories are. I don't know who he is. Like I don't. Mm-hmm. Not that everybody has to be that way. Sure, he's made a whole career on simply a hundred percent style. But wouldn't it be great for him if he started telling more personal stories, like about his mom growing up as a single kid in the valley in Los Angeles, like a little little a little Paul Thomas Anderson, you know? It would be great. But it, instead, what we get what we get from him is we know that he likes feet. He likes girls' feet a lot, and that's because that's what he wants to show us. And I'm tired of that. And music and movies and bur- and cheeseburgers and milkshakes and hairstyles and, you know, yeah. Yeah, I'm just tired of that. I just don't, I mean, if he wa- I, I'm tired of the things he wants to tell me about himself and about what he's interested in because those, I, that was fun for three or four movies in a row when he was making smaller scale, more intimate movies, but I'm not seeing that anymore, anything that, that, I'm, that, that makes me very interested in him, especially since he's gone so far to the absurdist extreme with the other kinds of things that he's hung up on the the overload of violence just really wears me out i just cannot handle it anymore yeah i couldn't i could barely handle it with django um django is so entertaining in so many ways but when it hits that third act like it once christoph waltz gets killed that movie takes a major crap it's like i mean on the one hand yes it's great that finally we get to see jamie fox really acting and taking the center of the movie because christoph waltz steals so much of the center that's mm-hmm. nice, but but he already had his denouement, his crescendo right then. So the movie has to then rev up again, get its engine rolling again to build to another climax, you know, and that's mm-hmm. tough to do. Can I just say, just insert really quickly that how absurd it is that the, M, that the Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, 
gives gives Django Unchained R rating and it gives Boyhood an R rating. That those both have R ratings. <laughs> I'm, isn't isn't that just absurdly sick? Wait, you know, why the does Boyhood have an R rating? Does that? I'm stealing this from an, from one of the readers on the site. I'll have to give credit to. I, I'll have to find out who said this. But they said the same thing about Wall, Wolf of Wall Street and Boyhood. That they both have R ratings, which is crazy. Wait, how can Boyhood have an R rating? I don't know, but it does. Right? I mean, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? I don't see anything in that movie that would make it an R rating. I, I can't even think of one thing. Is it because of maybe the drug use or is there language? I just don't even know. Uh, there was probably some teen drug use. That's enough to give it an R rating. Yeah. Um, they may have used the word fuck twice. That's enough to give it an R rating. Yeah, the, M- the MPAA is screwed. Wow, that's tough, man. It shouldn't be R. The other movie that uh, an education was another big deal. It launched the career of the beautiful, delightful, wonderful Carrie Mulligan. Um, District 9 was fantastic. I mean, come on. That guy's next movie tanked, unfortunately, um, that director. What was his... The thing about District 9 that really blew everyone away was when, because they made a they made it pretty clear how inexpensive it was. And when you saw what he put on screen, not only did he show every dollar on screen, but he showed dollars that you couldn't even imagine where they came from. You couldn't imagine that a movie that costs so little could look so good. Right? Yeah. It, but those special effects were just beautiful to look at. I tell you, um, District 9 is a movie that has a lot of emotional content and a lot of story in a visual effects movie. That so excited. It was my favorite movie of the year. And so when it didn't get any recognition at all, I was just, I'm still just befuddled and baffled and just so well, crestfallen by that. Well, because it was, it was, the movie was, there were two things that, that was going to prevent it from winning, from getting nominated. First, you have to remember, you guys have to remember this. Anybody who talks about the Oscars has to remember they have five slots, okay? Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about five slots, you have to, you're talking about, um, movies that are really, really popular in a year with a very, very competitive slate, right? You're not just talking about any old year. With 10, it would people think, oh, because there's nine nominees, that means that they have all these choices. Well, they don't. They have five. And you're talking about um, movies like the movies that they all liked, those hideous American Hustle. You have Nebraska. Mm-hmm. You have Wolf of Wall Street. You have 12 Years a Slave. Then you have Captain Phillips, right, and Gravity, those are all your big so players. I've, yeah, I know what you're driving at. I've said the same thing before. Maybe it's what you're driving at. I'm going to insert this anyway. It's not always the, the quality of the individual movie that counts so much as the movies that it's up against. Exactly. That is, is really a big thing that you have to think about what else is up against the movie that you love so much. And if other people just happen to love five other movies more, then that's right. it. That's, that's, that's it have, because they have five yeah. slots. With ten slots, yeah. Lewin Davis would have gotten in. But with yeah. five, those are some pretty competitive films right there. And, and like it or not, American Hustle was really popular with the actors. You always have mm-hmm. to go in through the actors, mm-hmm. and they loved American Hustle. You know, they loved Wolf of Wall Street, um, and Twelve Years a Slave and Gravity were already taking two slots automatically. Mm-hmm. So it was a tough get to get Lewin Davis in. I wish I had realized that at the beginning of the year. I didn't. I thought, like Craig did, that it was a kind of a, a no-brainer that it would get in. But almost a shoe in, right? That's what I was thinking, and that's why um, nominations morning. I was just could not believe it. 
But thinking about it now, I see that it's really a critic's movie and it's not an actor's movie. And it's, mm-hmm. and it's the kind of movie, as like I was saying earlier, that I think to, to really to, truly appreciate what it's trying to do and trying to say, you can't just watch it once. If you watch the movie once, i thinking that a lot of people didn't get it. And maybe, it, maybe you need to see it twice before you really get it, well, it what it's also, trying to do. It was also the bait and switch because... Mm-hmm. Inside Lewin Davis is about a really unlikable guy yeah. who was working in an industry that he hated. That was their premise when they started. There was like, what's his name? That guy that it's based on, even though it's only partly based on him, it's not really based on him. Mm-hmm. But Dave same Van sort Ronk, of idea, same sort of inspired by Dave yeah. Van Ronk. He hated um, the folk music industry. It was mm-hmm. horrible. So they were trying to portray a guy in an industry that he didn't really like and. At the same time, you had um, T-Bone Burnett and, and all these guys celebrating the music, the folk music. And you had all these, like, 60s generation dudes who were in the Academy who remember Greenwich Village and remember the folk scene. And they don't remember it as a big bummer like it is in the movie. <laughs> they don't want to remember it as a big mm-hmm. bummer either. No, yeah. they don't want to remember it. Um, and, and so T-Bone Burnett's, you know, celebrating the movie, the concert, the album. You hear this great, beautiful song sung by, uh, you know, by um, by uh, what's his name, the actor, and it's yeah, everybody thinks it's going to be this big celebration. Well, you watch it, and it's anything but that. So in a way, people weren't expecting it to be Oscar Isaac is the the actor. Mm-hmm. Oscar they, Isaac. They weren't expecting it to be a big bummer. They were expecting it to be a celebration of music. Oh, another I think thing the too, thing I that made it awesome is the thing that kept it from being nominated. Everybody wanted another baby boomer blowjob to a generation that's had plenty of right. them. Absolutely. And instead, they got an ode to failure, and it was an awesome ode to failure, ode and to it never failure. had a chance to win. There's that screenwriting book it. that is so popular that all, all, all screenwriting students have to buy. It's called Save the Cat, and they turned that upside down. They turned it inside out and did the opposite of Save the Cat. That's right. They left the cat in the car and walked off away from this is why people like us love the movie and people in the Academy don't because they're all about... And it wasn't just the Academy, by the way. The Producers Guild the um, and Directors Guild did not nominate it either. So it was definitely hate, kind of hated. Uh, I know, it's so sad. By, by industry voters. And, and part of it was that bait and switch. Like if they had, I think if they had sold the movie early on as, as what it is... An ode to failure. It might have done a little bit better than it did, as as it was, with, where they were like, "It's T Bone Burnett, and it's music, it's folk music." And because the the previous musical movie that that team did was "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou," which right. was a it was a lark, it was a romp, it was fun, and this was not. No. <laughs> and there's the cat. You know, when I saw it, everybody was so mad about the cat. It's like. I didn't expect that, but the audience, they really were mad that he left the oh, cat I know. Yeah. in the car. <laughs> they didn't like it because of that, you know. Um, but anyway, back to So there's only one movie that we haven't really talked in the Best Picture lineup, and that's Precious. Your favorite movie? <laughs> I, you know, I don't even want to say anything about it because I just think it's a loathsome movie. I think it's just almost like lurid and vulgar. But so, <laughs> I, and I just never have liked that movie. I, will I never say, want to see it again. I'll say this about it: I never saw it, and I never will. Um, <laughs> but I love Lee Daniels. And I'll, mm-hmm. no, no, yeah, and it's great that you champion him because of the fact that he's gay and he's black, and he's a he's a good no, gay black director, and they need all the support that they can get. That's not the reason I champion him, although mm. that is a good reason. It's it's actually yeah. because I heard him in an interview, and I heard about him talking about his life and how he survived abuse and how he adopted these two twin boys, and he he was really cool, and I really liked him, 
in that interview and I respect mm-hmm. what he's doing and I and I loved the butler I'll follow that dude anywhere I won't see this movie though because I did grow up in a really abusive household and I cannot watch a movie where a mother abuses a daughter I just can't Verbally, the thing about it was just... that I I don't mind uh, lurid and vulgar. In fact, the the movie he made after Precious was The Paperboy, and that was pure vulgar, top to bottom. But it was material. It was kind of this queasy Florida film noir material that suited that weird vulgarity that he has. Whereas in Precious, the scenes that went weird and vulgar just seemed completely out of place with the with the with the melodramatic story that he was telling. And he, his movie after The Paperboy turned away from that style uh, in, in The Butler, and he was much more mainstream, and it worked a lot better. He, he approached that I, a little bit at times, and it was, but it was, he didn't rub your nose in it in the same way that he did. And it just, being able to separate those instincts out, I think, really benefited him. I like that he's a little bit gaudy. I can handle gaudy, and I and he does gaudy really, really well. But when gaudy crosses a certain line, and I don't, can't even you know define where that line is, but I know when it, when it's been crossed, I, a movie loses me, and I can't, I can't get me back. It depends on the material for me. If it's a, if it's material that lends itself to that kind of aesthetic, like natural born killers, me, maybe. Precious. No, I didn't like really like that movie either. But Precious was just not the right material for that. And maybe it's my fault because maybe my expectations of it were that it was going to be this serious melodrama about a poor black girl, and mm-hmm. it was it was a totally different movie than that. And maybe if I saw it again, I might feel differently. But anyway, I applaud him for a film about women, about black women, for an all black cast, for being Mm -hmm. for hiring a black screenwriter and for being a black director. For all of those reasons, I applaud him. Certainly deserves a place um, in the best picture race, especially if a movie like The Blind Side is is alongside it. Mm -hmm. So bravo to the Academy. Um, Glad it won supporting actress, especially when Jeff Wells was on an anti-Monique campaign talking about her not shaving her legs and how lame it was that she wasn't on the campaign trail and so much so that she had to like defend herself at the mic um, I was happy and she won and I love that she the- won even though I didn't like the movie I'm glad that she won because she was great in it and she's head and shoulders above all of the other nominees too yeah, I, I'll agree with that, and and also bravo to the Independent Spirit Awards because it won five awards the night before the Oscars. It won Best Picture, Best Female Lead, Best Supporting Female, Best Director, and Best Screenplay at the Indie Spirit Awards the night before the Oscars, yeah. He's a, uh, which is usually the kiss of death for any Oscar hopes whatsoever, but this movie was a great crossover film. Yeah, and he's a pioneer, and he's an experiment, um, spe- experiment ugh, he experiments with film, and he, he's not afraid to fail. And I like mm-hmm. that about him. And I like that he pisses off people like Guy Lodge. <laughs> and I will say, too, another thing, too, in, in, in one, the one thing I did like about Precious, that where he kind of makes a connection to what he's trying to do experimentally, is he shows some really lurid Italian clips from an Italian movie from the 1950s or something and shows that he's trying to make a connection between that type of movie and what he's doing now. Because those movies, uh, those early neorealist movies, are pretty brutal, too. Yeah, Things but the movie that he shows is nothing like... The, the stuff that he does in his film where she's being raped on the bed and then he shows chicken frying and no. squeaking bed springs. Oh, I know, just, the chicken it, frying thing, the bacon frying just, is really weird. It goes, it goes too far out there. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm actually talking about it. I'm actually curious to see it again. I sort of wished I, that I'd rewatched it um, for this podcast because I think that 
you know, I'll be the first one to admit a lot of times I go into a movie and if it doesn't, if it isn't what I expect it to be, then I'm, I'm overly critical of it. But I think having seen his subsequent films, I think I'm a little more open-minded to try and see what it was he was trying to do. So I might have to check that out in the next couple of weeks. Before we end, I don't know how close we are to running out of steam, but I just wanted to mention about, we talked about Jeff Bridges doing just a fantastic job making the circuit to to seize the best actor Oscar, but I had such hopes for A Single Man. A Single Man is one of my favorite movies of of, of, um, 2009. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it at least, and Harvey Weinstein had promised Colin Firth that he was going to win an Oscar for him for A Single Man, and he had to wait a year. He had to wait for the King's Speech, and I really wish that they had swapped those awards. I said before it's almost a cliche now that I wish that Jeff Bridges had won for True Grit and Colin Firth had won for A Single Man because uh, I think that A Single Man is just a gorgeous movie. I mean, I, I really wish that... Who was the director who... The designer who directed them? Um, Ford? Yeah, uh, Tom Ford, right. Tom Ford. Um, I, I'm, I wish he would do another movie because I visually, is like he, he talked about... Harkening back to something that that, that, that an Italian would, guy would do in the 1960s, it reminded me so much of something Antonioni would do or something. Oh, it's Absolutely. a great, great movie. That definitely got the short shrift from typically homophobic Academy. Colin Firth should have won that year, and Julianne Moore should have been nominated, but she got screwed, like mm-hmm. she always does. Right. Yeah. Sure. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Crazy Heart, though. I shouldn't talk about it because I hated the movie, but um, <laughs> it's an interesting Oscar story anyway. The fact that it was originally a Paramount Vantage picture, but Paramount Vantage was sort of in the process of imploding because they'd spent so much money on No Country for Old Men that that I think that Paramount was rethinking the, the mini-major business model, and so Crazy Heart was sort of left dangling. But the wily publicist who was attached to it got a couple of bloggers to see it and to talk it up, and oh, really? suddenly Fox, Fox Searchlight, who had all of its hopes on Amelia and Amelia crashed and burned once people finally saw it was left standing there with their dorks in their hands wondering what they were going to do about Oscars so they swooped in and sort of rescued Crazy Heart at the last minute and uh, and so it's all their fault that Colin Firth got screwed an Oscar Mm. story was born Um, (laughs) it did it it definitely did that Uh, and and, uh, what's his name Scott Cooper's career was made Right, which I'm not sorry about that. Although since we, since you confessed never having seen Precious, Sasha, I have never seen Crazy Heart, and I never saw it because one thing I just don't like that kind of music. It grates on my ears so badly. But you know, you I don't even, even have to. No matter see who's it. singing it, I can't listen to it. You don't have to see it because everything you imagine about it is exactly what happens. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I. You know, sometimes you can see a trailer and you, that's enough. You know, believe me, you know yeah. everything that it's you're actually worse than what you're you're picturing. <laughs> <laughs> because the the core romance is so entirely unbelievable it's not even funny it's so unbelievable but it's it is it's exactly what you would expect exactly the only good thing about it is jeff bridges how he managed to win best actor is a feat and a coup of publicity unlike anything i've ever seen in the oscar race before or since i've never seen anyone doggedly go after the oscar uh like that um, it's a really good performance. That should be said. It's a terrible movie, but it's a really good performance. But he's always good. And I'm glad to see him win. I have no regret. You know, yes, I think I uh, would love to have seen a single man get uh, the recognition it deserved. But I'm also happy to see Jeff Bridges win an Oscar. You know, he deserved it. Fucking hell. I mean, not necessarily for that performance, I'm saying. But 
as a career Oscar, sure. Yeah, I can see that. Just too. the timing was bad. Yeah, he should have won for True bad. Grit the next year instead of Firth. Yeah, for yeah he, I think that True Grit. I love True Grit, and I think he's fantastic. And it was such a such a reevaluation and a re such a great reboot of the, what John Wayne did with True Grit in 1968 or whatever. But one thing more about the Hurt Locker, it would have been a little bit demoralizing, and we probably would have been harder to harder to swallow and harder to live down if Hurt Locker had only won three or four Oscars. But when it started to sweep, when it started to steamroll, and, and the, we could see the the snowball effect of Hurt Locker that's one of the few times I've really liked to see when a lot of when a, when a, when a movie can win six or seven Oscars in a row how many did it win well one picture um, six director, I think yeah six screenplay sound sound editing uh that's five what am I missing uh, sound editing and sound mixing screenplay and director screen, picture screenplay editing and editing, editing yeah. six, yeah. yeah. Yay, Hurt Locker. It's awesome. Right. And by the way, the editor, I think, is the same editor who edited uh, Social Network also won, and then Dragon Tattoo also won. That same guy. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Um, it was a great year. It was one of my favorites. We've gone two hours on this. I don't know how much of it's going to end up on the actual <laughs> podcast. That's a long... I was just kind of trying to scan down the other categories real quickly to see what if there's anything we've overlooked, and I really uh, planned that I don't see anything. We did a pretty good job of touching all the bases this time, I think. We'll probably not have touched the you know the films that, that, that some of the listeners like the most. But Sometimes uh, what we do is we look down at the year, the things that were overlooked entirely, and we didn't do that at all this year. I mean, well, this week, this episode, we didn't look at any of the other movies that that were not recognized because I think for once there was one of the years when the, the Academy does a pretty good job of, of, of acknowledging every great movie because they expanded to 10. So they had that mm -hmm. opportunity to do that. Um, yeah, not for me There's only two movies that were my favorites of that year that were even acknowledged by the Academy. It was a, and if it weren't for the Hurt Locker winning, I think it would have been a kind of a, tragic year but that's because most of the stuff that i liked that year was was foreign stuff and most of it had come out the year before technically and then was released and it was never going to get any play anyway the best movie of the year for me was summer hours the olivier assayas movie all right mm -hmm. um and it it didn't even it it didn't get nominated for foreign it didn't get nominated for anything because oscar doesn't care but a couple of movies that I liked a lot that didn't get any recognition at all by the Oscars. Well, uh, Rooney Mara got nominated for Best Actress for The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, so that was great. I was, really, I think we were all really happy to see that. But I Am Love with Tilda Swinton was a fantastic uh, movie. I don't think Dragon Tattoo and was this year. It was the next year. No, it wasn't even. It was... Um, oh, yeah, 11. right. I'm sorry. I'm looking... Wait a minute. What am I looking at? I'm looking Dragon at 2009. Dragon Tattoo was 11, uh, 2011, I think. Oh, yeah, I'm looking at the other Dragon Tattoo movie. Yeah, I'm looking at the original Swedish the Dragon one. Tattoo movie. That's what I'm thinking, which was also really good. But anyway, scratch that. Rooney Mara did not get nominated for the Swedish version. Dragon Tattoo sure. would have gotten in with yeah, but in, But I, let's, I will say Tilda Swinton and I Am Love. And I really liked 500 Days of Summer. I thought that was a, a nice, great little, fantastic screenplay. And a movie that you liked a lot, Sasha, that year was In the Loop. And that's has turned panned out really well for Armando Iannucci. Yep, that was uh, that's one of the two movies that I felt that I championed into a nomination, and that was uh, for adapted screenplay. I mm -hmm. just kept hitting it and hitting it and hitting it and hitting it, and eventually people noticed. Um, 
I'm not saying I loop, take credit. I'm, I'm not saying I take credit for it, but it was a movie that that had that needed someone to lift it up and go here. Look at this movie. It's an unexpected nomination. I think. I think that it probably was something that that took a lot of people by surprise because not very many people had seen it, and I think a lot of people may have thought that it was a little bit too wall-to-wall F-words and stuff like that, which doesn't bother me at all. But I will say that the first time I saw it, that I wasn't all that impressed by it, but you liked it so much that I went back to look at it again, and I felt totally differently about it. It's fantastic. Fuck off. Why wasn't I told about this? Why the fuck would I tell you about it? I've told you to fuck off twice, and yet you're still here. You should tell me about it because it's a scheduled media appearance by this department's Secretary of State, so therefore it falls well within my purview. Within your purview? Yes. Where do you think you are? In some fucking Regency costume drama? This is a government department, not a fucking Jane fucking Austen novel. Malcolm. Allow me to pop a jaunty little bonnet on your purview and ram out of the shitter with a lubricated horse cock. For everyone who cringes when I use the word horse cock, you can complain about it because of In the Loop. That's where I, it became a part of my vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie, and I was really happy to see it get a nomination. Very, very happy. I know that they, they paid for um, advertising at one point, um, and I always felt like I was really... Because they, they didn't have any money at all. They were totally flat broke trying to promote this thing, and they only promoted it because it had buzz... And I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great if these guys got a nomination? Because little when mo- little movies like that get recognition, it just it just to me it's just the biggest high. Mm-hmm. Another movie that I liked a lot. Um, I had an opportunity to interview John Hillcoat or Viggo Mortensen for The Road, and of course I decided to talk to Viggo instead. And they they gave me the, an interview with him that was at the very end of the day when he had been talking to people on the phone for 15 minutes at a time all day long, and I thought he's going to be exhausted. He's not going to feel like saying anything more, anything fresh to me at all. But we ended up having like an hour and 15 minute conversation, and then when I played it back, the played back the recording. It was in- intelligible, unintelligible. I couldn't even make out what we'd said. We had a great conversation, but I couldn't transcribe any of it because the recording was so bad I couldn't even understand what we were saying. Oh. It was a thrill to talk to him for an hour and 15 minutes anyway. I actually also had a great, yeah, that's cool. I had a great Vigo thing that year too because I'd written a really good review of On the Road because I actually mm-hmm. thought it was exceptional. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't get traction from the critics, but I loved it and it bombed with the public. And um, Vigo Mortensen... Uh, Acknowledged that I had written that review, and he ended up um, writing to me and saying, "I want to, I want to send you a gift and to thank you." And he sent me a box full of books published by his publishing company, like poetry and photography. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. He never sent me anything because it, the, the interview we did never saw the light of day. So he must like hate me. I wasted an hour and fifteen minutes of his life. No, I'm sure not. And and <laughs> off the record, believe me, these aren't books you would want anyway. But it was nice of him to to send. I thought it was a very nice gesture, but. He, was he started. So he, he told me when we were talking he was going to have a drink that he had waited all night long to have a drink and he was going to make himself like a gin and tonic or something and so he was. I could hear the the ice clinking in his glass and everything and he just got a little bit sloshy and just talkative, really talkative. Yeah, at the apparently end of the day. he is. It's so like, nice. It's amazing. People always say that he's really, really a talkative interview and that he takes a really long time and that thought, very thoughtfully considers mm-hmm. his response. He was really thoughtful and, and just spoke to me just as if I was somebody, which was nice. Oh, I know who said that. David Cronenberg. He said that um, Vigo was somebody who just wanted to talk all the time about his part, like just mm-hmm. always talk, 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 talk. 
I wish that he had gotten an Oscar nomination for that. I really do. I thought he deserved it. Was a fantastic that movie should have gotten more love, but it was so goddamn dark. I think it just really turned people off. It was another Weinstein movie that he kind of like, I think he when he saw that it wasn't going to make any money and that no amount of Oscar push was going to help it make any more money, he sort of, I believe he kind of threw it under the bus a little bit. He had a, He had bigger fish to fry that year. Yeah, probably. Jumped on Team Bastards because he knew that it had a bigger chance. Yeah, right, right. It was too bad. I, you know, unfortunately, the thing about the road for me was I saw it too late um, in the season, and I didn't have time to really promote it. I just there were it was mm-hmm. just like right at the very last second that I saw it, and they they ended up using my quote on the poster and everything, and he was really appreciative. But I wish I had had more time. I think I could have sold him as a as a can- contender. Maybe that's just delusional wishful thinking. But no, I don't. But I mean, it's another one of those situations where you look at the other a- actors who were nominated that year, and it, it's a little bit all the the seats were already taken a lot that year. Yeah, maybe so. What were they? The five? Um, Bridges, know. Firth, Freeman, Renner, and Clooney. Yeah, pretty. Yeah, much. Freeman would have been would maybe the weak Freeman link. To the curb, yeah. As much mm-hmm. as I, I love him, that movie was yeah. terrible. What was he nominated yeah. for? He was in Inv- Invictus. Oh, Invictus! I can't believe Invictus. <laughs> and you could that. throw Clooney to the curb too, frankly. <laughs> Clooney. Uh, and I, I say that as, as, as having a huge man crush on Clooney, but no way.